Thank you for listening to this message from Northwest Hills Community Church in Corvallis, Oregon. You can learn more about our church at nwhills.com. Today, Worship Director Justin Jackson continues a series called What is Going On, where we read the entire Bible in a year. Paul's letter to Philemon is a unique and personal book. It teaches us about having healthy relationships in God's kingdom. It also reminds us, on a human level, that we each owe a huge, unpayable debt to Christ. And because we have been forgiven, we should also forgive others. After the message and throughout the week, read the letter to Philemon. Also, check out nwhills.com slash hub, that's H-U-B, for additional resources like book overviews, reading plans, and application questions. Now, here's today's message. We are nearing the end. That's kind of amazing to think about, actually. We are nearing the end of a year-long study um, through the Bible that we have entitled What is Going On? Basically, seeing what the Bible has to tell us uh, right now in Corvallis, Oregon in 2023, um, in a time when we are often asking ourselves, what in the world is going on around me? Right? Now, uh, the passage we're going to study today, I actually think is one of the most unique uh, books in the Bible that you will ever read. It is simultaneously one of the most like intimate and personal written works in the whole Bible, yet it contains some of the most universal lessons for us as believers. That book would be the book of Philemon. It's named after the man that it was written to, a man named Philemon. It was written by Paul from prison in Rome. This would be during his third missionary journey. And, uh, and uh, in it, we get a really different writing style than, say, you know, Romans or Colossians or even uh, the letters to Timothy and Titus, right? It's not a letter about a church, or like what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong. It's not like this pastoral manual for like pastoral ministry or something like that. It's just a personal letter that deals with a very personal topic. Uh, and what I want to do right now, um, just to start things off, is I just want to read it. I want to read it just the way Philemon would have done. It's only 25 verses. Uh, I'm going to invite Jackie Moses up actually to come read it for us this morning. Um, so we're going to read the whole book. If you're looking for it, it's going to be right before Hebrews, and it's going to be uh, right after Timothy and Titus. Uh, my guess is that's going to be one page, less than one page in your Bible. Um, so would you stand uh, for the reading of God's word? And uh, go ahead, Jackie, whenever you're ready. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in that faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to go do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who also became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and me. I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. 
I would have liked to keep him with me so that, you, so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you would not seem forced would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So, if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit to you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, Jackie. Church, you can have a seat. <clears throat> Sorry, you'll have to bear with me. I'm coming off of a little bit of a cold here. Um, man, uh, so we read that, and what you might be asking yourself, uh, especially if you've like heard this uh, verse, this passage for the very first time, this, this book, um, I remember I thought this when I read Philemon for the first time. Why is this in the Bible? Right? Like, it's not, it's not like a treatise on church life. It doesn't have, like, a list about the qualifications for elders or pastors. It's not like the account of a missionary journey uh, of some apostles. This is a guy asking another guy to forgive a third guy. Right? Like, it'd be like me sending a long text to Travis Larson, who's a good friend of mine, uh, saying, like, hey, man, uh, how's it going? I hope you're doing well. I hope Carissa, who, by the way, is my fellow worker in Christ because she works here at the church with me, uh, I hope she's doing well. I hope Brooke's doing well. Hey, I know you and so-and-so uh, kind of had a rough history. I know he broke your spike ball net a few years ago. And I, I just think it's time for you guys to bury the hatchet. Like, uh, I, I miss playing spike ball with both of you guys. I don't know. What, what do you say, right? Oh, by the way, Windsor and I are coming over to hang out sometime. Uh, prepare a guest room for us. You know, like, that's, that's like, that's how this reads. That's how this letter reads. So how in the world did this letter, of all the stuff we could have had in the holy word of God, make it in? Because we believe, like as a church, right, that this book that many of us are holding is the inspired word of God himself, the creator of the universe. So what is he trying to say to us? How is the Holy Spirit speaking to us 2,000 years later through the words of Paul to Philemon? Ultimately, what we're going to see this morning is that the letter of Philemon is in the Bible because it teaches us, uh, through one man's words to another, a universal message right, for every believer, about what it means to live in the kingdom of God, to be a follower of Jesus. And the message is this, God's kingdom is about restoring relationships, not destroying them. I'm going to say that one more time. God's kingdom is about restoring relationships and not destroying them. So how does Philemon teach us about restoring relationships? Well, Let's get some context, right? Who are these people and what are their relationships uh, with one another? Now, sometimes when I'm studying um, like a passage for a sermon on a Sunday, I'll read a bunch of commentaries, right? Josh has like a million commentaries in like the library in his office and I always borrow like a bunch of them and they're all stacked in my office for a week and then I give them all back. 
Um, and usually, usually during that time, um, you know, I'll read one commentator's uh, uh, notes, his like interpretation of what's happening, um, and especially regarding like the subtext of the passage. So not necessarily like the text itself. Most of the time, that's all pretty straightforward. But like the subtext, he has to kind of come up with an interpretation of what's going on here behind the scenes. Um, and uh, one, commentator, one commentator will end up saying one thing about the subtext, and then I'll read another commentary, and he'll say, like, the exact opposite. Um, and it's fine, because they both agree on, like, the actual, like, text of what's happening, um, but they'll have different opinions of, like, well, who's related to who and all this stuff. Um, this week, thankfully, uh, that was not the case, and basically every commentary I read on Philemon agreed on what is probably going on behind the scenes here. Okay, so let's start with Philemon. Most Bible scholars agree that Philemon was a wealthy Roman citizen uh, who probably lived in Colossae, right? Uh, It is believed that Philemon met Paul in Ephesus uh, while Paul was living there for a couple of years and preaching. Uh, Philemon might have been there on business and he met Paul and he became a believer. Then what happened is he went back to Colossae and he joined the church in uh, Colossae and eventually started hosting one of the Colossian-like house churches communities in his home. Um, Appia, who's the woman mentioned in verse 2, um, it, most Bible scholars agree, is Philemon's wife. And then Archippus uh, is probably uh, Philemon's son. Uh, now, think of him as like a grown-up son. In fact, a lot of Bible scholars think that Archippus was actually one of the church leaders in Colossae, and that while the church was meeting in Philemon's home, Archippus was actually like leading the, uh, the meetings. So what we have here is this, this picture of this really beautiful uh, like Christian family, these followers of Jesus as a family who are doing the ministry of uh, the work of the kingdom right in their home. Now, who is Onesimus? The letter pretty plainly implies that Onesimus was a slave who had at one time belonged to Philemon and then ran away. Uh, Not only that, but most Bible scholars believe that Onesimus had done something harmful to Philemon along with running away, something like maybe he stole something on his way out, or maybe while he was trying to escape, he ended up hurting Philemon or a member of his family in the process, right? We don't know the details of that, um, but uh, Onesimus, what we do know is that Onesimus had uh, deeply betrayed Philemon in some way. Now, really quickly, This brings us into a point of tension in our study this morning. What do we do? And I think Josh talked about this a little bit when we were talking about Titus. What do we do when passages like this mention the institution of slavery that existed in Rome at that time, but don't really condemn it? Right? Because we don't ever really see Jesus or Paul make these really definitive statements about the Roman slave trade. In fact, most of the time when we See, when they talk about slaves, they tell them to obey their masters, right? Paul actually sends Onesimus back to Philemon, his master. So what do we do with this, right? Does the Bible condone slavery? Well, the short answer is no. Um, if we look at the totality of scripture, as we have done this whole last year, right? We see a God who at his very core loves humanity, and made us with intrinsic value. We see a God who desires justice and designed us to be free, and institutional slavery, which devalues and robs humans of their freedom, is completely and totally antithetical to the heart of God. What do we do? What we do hear from Jesus and Paul time and time again is a reminder that the institutional slavery that was existed in a lot of cultures at the time, including Rome, it was a byproduct. It was a symptom 
of the actual disease that gripped all of humanity, right? Which was slavery to sin. And Jesus and Paul talk a lot about how the kingdom of God was designed to free people from sin. He came to free us, Jesus came to free us from that slavery in his kingdom, where we are no longer slaves to sin, institutional human slavery ultimately has no part or place, right? Paul actually says, right, we read this earlier in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Basically saying, Rome might call you a slave, right? Rome might still call you a slave, but in Christ's kingdom, you are simply his child, right? Which makes everyone else in that kingdom your brothers and your sisters, which coincidentally is the language Paul is going to use with Philemon this morning. But I just, I want to recognize that tension. Before we keep going with our study, I want to recognize that tension because uh, what both Jesus and Paul understood was that, yes, we're part of a new kingdom, right? We're the kingdom of heaven, but we still live in Rome, right? This side of heaven, we still live in the tension between a perfect heavenly kingdom and a broken world with broken systems, right? So with our context, we've got three main characters of this, uh, of this book. We've got Onesimus, we've got Philemon, and we've got Paul. And each of these three men, he's going to teach us a universal lesson about what it takes to restore relationships in the kingdom of God. Three men, three lessons to be learned, three ingredients for restoring healthy Christian relationships. Here they are. Repentance, forgiveness, and intercession. Repentance, forgiveness, and intercession, right? We have Onesimus, the repentant inflictor of pain. We have Philemon, the forgiving recipient of that pain. And then we have Paul, the catalyst, kind of the middleman. He's interceding on behalf of these two men, seeking reconciliation between them. The power at the heart of this book is that every single one of us knows what it's like to be the Onesimus, of this story, right? To have hurt someone, betrayed someone, right? All of us know what it's like to be a Philemon, someone who's been betrayed. I see a lot more heads nodding when that, I say that. And all of us know what it's like to be Paul, right? Seeing a relationship fall apart from the sidelines and not know what to do. So let's see what they do, right? Let's start with Onesimus and repentance. Okay, well, first, what is repentance, right? On a fundamental level, I feel like I've heard this a lot of times in sermons. On a fundamental level, all repentance is, is like turning around, right? I think that's like the, the, the exact way to say it. Uh, uh, realizing that you're going the wrong way, pulling a 180, and going the opposite direction, right? Now, in the Christian life, right, uh, repentance is this realization that the way you've been living, the selfishness you've lived with, the harmful things you've done against others and God, ultimately is wrong, right? Turning around and then desiring to live differently than before, than you did before, right? That's basic repentance. And it's the place Onesimus is in when Paul writes this letter. Paul writes in verses 10 through 12, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Right? Paul actually converted Onesimus. Right? He calls him his child. He's the child of his conversion. Right? Paul met Onesimus after he had run away from Philemon. He shared the gospel with him, as Paul is one to do. Um, and Onesimus, through his conversion, he made a 180 and dedicated his life to God. Then, at some point afterwards, Onesimus confesses to Paul uh, that he ran away from Philemon. And so Paul 
like a good apostle, a good father figure, he says, hey, we got to make this right. We got we to gotta square up the situation. You need to go back to Philemon. And Onesimus is willing to do so. In fact, a lot of Bible scholars believe that Onesimus actually may have been, he may have held the letter and actually handed it to Philemon. It was either him or I think Epaphras, one of those two. Um, and so Onesimus goes, right? Uh, now there are like personal uh, duties and legal reasons for Onesimus to return to Philemon. But I think Paul states the strongest reason in verse 11, right? When he says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is useful to you, right? Paul is returning to Philemon, a fellow worker, right? Now, more than just as a servant, a worker in his household, but as a worker for the sake of the gospel, right? And as a side note, I think this is really cool. This is brilliant. It's like all this wordplay because the name Onesimus was actually just a really common slave name in Rome. And in the Greek, it literally means useful. Okay, so what we read here is Paul basically making a pun, right? He's, he's, he's making a joke um, that like perfectly diffuses the tension because I'm sure there would be tension in Philemon's heart reading this letter uh, while stating a powerful truth, right? Basically, it's this. The Onesimus that you remember uh, was not the true Onesimus. The person I'm sending back to you, the regenerated Onesimus, will truly be Onesimus, useful to you. It's this powerful illustration of Onesimus's like transformation and repentance um, that probably honestly would have made Philemon laugh. It's kind of lost on us now, but um, I think it's kind of funny. Here's what I'm getting at. Let's imagine that Onesimus returned or like was returned to Philemon uh, like without the conversion, right? An unchanged man. Philemon was a believer, right? So it's possible, there's a very real chance that Philemon would have forgiven him anyways. But say Onesimus kept being the way he was. Say he kept trying to run away. Say he kept, for example, possibly stealing from, from Philemon or hurting him or his family. Would the relationship truly be restored, right? Because we have a word for that when two people are in a relationship uh, and one is hurting the other and is unrepentant about it, right? We call that an unhealthy relationship. Sometimes we even use the phrase an abusive relationship, right? But Onesimus' desire is to return to Philemon the right way. He doesn't want to hurt Philemon or his family ever again. He is a changed man, repentant. Healthy relationships need that. Right? When we hurt the people we love, when we betray them, when we wrong them, we don't simply ask for forgiveness and then just keep doing it. Right? That doesn't restore the relationship. Restoring the relationship says, I see that that hurt you, and I'm changing course, and I never want to do that again. And it's a picture of something we all had to do. Right? Uh, William Scroggy, whose commentary was invaluable to me this week uh, as I prepared the sermon, he writes this of the story of Onesimus in particular. He says, We are all God's Onesimuses, and but for our great friend, what would have become of us? That great friend he's referring to, right, is Jesus. You owed a great debt, and someone interceded on your behalf. So ask yourself, where have you been the Onesimus? Where in your life must you repent? Who must you go back to in order to restore a relationship? Next, we have Philemon. 
And this concept of forgiveness, right? Philemon is tasked with the monumental responsibility. And I don't take that, I don't say that lightly. A monumental responsibility of forgiving Onesimus of his past grievances and taking him back into his house, right? It is the only way that the relationship can be truly restored. And until it happens, Onesimus can't keep doing the work of the ministry he's called to, right? Paul knows this. He says, in verses 12 through 15, he says, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. We read that earlier. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Paul has put Onesimus's ministry work on hold until this relationship is squared away, until this situation is dealt with. See, Paul, he does something really cool here. Uh, he creates a situation in which Onesimus is returned uh, not to oppression and abuse as a slave, right, but as a brother to Philemon, while also upholding the Roman law by sending the servant back to his master. It's actually a kind of mirror uh, to Christ's uh, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's speech in Matthew 22, basically saying, and Matthew Henry actually says this way better than me, so I'm just going to quote him. Uh, Matthew Henry, in his commentary, he puts it this way. Paul herein, notwithstanding his apostolical power, would show what regard he had to civil rights, which Christianity does by no means supersede or weaken, but rather confirm and strengthen. Onesimus, he knew, was Philemon's servant, and therefore without his consent not to be detained from him. In his unconverted state, he had violated that right and withdrawn himself to his master's injury. But now that he had seen his sin and repented, he was willing and desirous to return to his duty, and Paul would not hinder this but rather further it. Paul both acknowledges and affirms the justice required by Philemon's civil rights while simultaneously creating a situation that will benefit both Onesimus and Philemon. Onesimus isn't going back under the lash, but to be, as Paul says in verse 16, Philemon's beloved brother. There's another reason Paul is sending Onesimus back as soon as possible. It's so that Philemon's forgiveness can be genuine, right? We read that Paul desires for Philemon's goodness to, uh, for Onesimus to be of his own accord, right? His desires for Philemon's heart, right? Not his words to forgive Onesimus. Paul knows that, if, that he could force Philemon's hand. He actually says it uh, a couple of times in the letter, but he doesn't want that right? Healthy relationships require genuine love, right? And the freedom to choose to have someone in our life. Commanding Philemon to forgive out of compulsion doesn't truly accomplish anything, right? In Ephesians 4.32, Paul writes to the whole church in Ephesus, he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as Christ forgave you. So for Philemon's sake, Paul appeals to him, asks him, rather than commanding him. So what do I mean by for Philemon's sake? Let me pose a question to you. And I I think I know the answer. (laughs) Has anyone here uh, ever lived with an unforgiven hurt? Uh, What I mean by that is like you were hurt and uh, they never asked for forgiveness and you didn't want to give it anyways, right? Does that feel good? Like, uh, not the hurt of the, of like the, like the sin, right? Like, obviously that's its own thing. 
What I mean is the bitterness, right? Is it healthy to let that bitterness and that hatred uh, for that person grow in your life? You can answer. It's okay. (laughs) No. (laughs) Uh, No, it's not. Whether we admit it, ignore it, sear our consciousness of it, uh, unforgiveness like festers like a wound, doesn't it? Here's an analogy. My wife uh, just became a registered nurse as of this week. Woo, really amazing. Super proud of her. Um, She has studied all this medical terminology that I don't understand and words like pathophysiology. Um, And so by proxy, I've like heard about a lot of this stuff uh, that she has studied. And um, one condition that I've heard Windsor talk about on multiple occasions uh, is this condition called uh, sepsis. Okay, it's fascinating. Here's how sepsis is defined, right? Sepsis is the body's immune system reacting inappropriately to infection. So much so that the immune system actually begins damaging the body. The blood vessels dilate and cause very low blood pressure, all this jargon. If left untreated, the body's organs start to actually shut down. uh, And this ultimately leads to death. So here's my analogy. Um, Unforgiveness is like sepsis, right? Stick with me here. Um, Someone sins against you. They hurt you, right? Let's call that a wound, right? That's not much of a stretch. I think we do that all the time with sin. We call like the sins that we receive from other people like wounds to us, right? Let's say that wound gets infected, which often happens with wounds. Um, We'll call that like the the, um, consequences of that sin, right? Like you hurt me, so now I have trauma, right? Like something has happened to me. There are consequences that's uh, the effects of that initial sin. Unforgiveness, like sepsis, is this inappropriate response to the wounds we receive throughout our lives. It leads us in this downward spiral of bitterness and distrust, which leads us to lag in our spiritual disciplines, right? It leads us to forgo our healthy relationships, to actually form relationships with other bitter people. You see that a lot. Um, and it eventually destroys us right? I love this quote. I don't know who it's actually attributed to. Maybe one of you can tell me. I looked, Google had like 17 versions of the uh, quote attributed to like different philosophers and uh, famous people all throughout history. But it basically goes like this. Unforgiveness is like taking poison, but expecting someone else to die, right? Uh, In the book of Proverbs, uh, we actually read this truth. Hatred stirs up strife. That's like strife in your life, right? Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. You see what they're getting at, right? You won't be whole until you can forgive, right? You won't be made whole unless you can forgive. Now, forgiveness, amazingly, actually has the power to do the opposite, right? To heal those wounds. It's your immune system doing what it was actually designed to do. And here's the thing. Anyone who's received a major wound knows that even when fully healed, they often leave something called a scar, right? Yeah. Like there are still consequences for sin, right? The mark is still there. But here's the thing. You can live with a scar, right? You can function properly with a scar. Sepsis, if left untreated, will ultimately kill you. We need to be willing to forgive. Now, finally, let's look at Paul, right? What's Paul's role in all of this? Paul is the intercessory between Onesimus and Philemon. If that word sounds like Christianese, I get it. It kind of is. Um, 
here, uh, let me define it for you, okay? Uh, Google defines intercession as the action of intervening on behalf of another, like intervention, right? Um, I didn't like that one as much, so I went to Webster. Webster defines it as intervening between parties with a view to reconciling differences. Uh, some synonyms for intercession include words like mediation, and we heard it already, reconciliation. Intercession is stepping in the middle, right, of something that's broken and pulling it back together again. And this is something that followers of Jesus uh, are called to, all of us. Uh, In Matthew 18, Jesus actually laid out this process uh, for reconciling between believers. Here's what he said. He said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's us. If he refuses uh, to listen to them, tell it to the church, right? And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Basically saying the church itself is designed around the idea of repairing broken relationships. Now, massive caveat, okay? Hear this. Are we all expert intercessors every time we involve ourselves in someone else's drama? No. Is there a right time and a wrong time to involve yourself in someone else's drama? Yes. There is interceding and there is meddling, right? Uh, And we're called to be intercessors, uh, but we're not called to be meddlers, right? Uh, uh, okay, if that's the case, JJ, then like, okay, how do I be a good intercessor and not a meddler, right? How do I intercede uh, while not meddling in other people's stuff? Uh, well, we have a really good example right here in Philemon of Paul doing it exactly how we should, the healthy Christ-like way. So let's check these out. Um, there's going to be, like, it's going to be like a bunch of bullet points. They're all kind of short. He's got, I've got like four or five examples that Paul just shoots off through the letter. Uh, so here we go. Number one, Paul is intimately equated with both of these men, right? He calls Philemon his beloved uh, fellow worker and his brother. He calls Onesimus his child and his own heart. He's very close to the situation, and he very clearly understands both sides, right? If Paul had only been friends with one of these guys, uh, how lopsided would that intercession have been, right? Um, But by God's grace, right, Paul was situated in a place where he could position himself between them and say, hey, I know know you, and I know you. I know you guys are loving guys. I want to bring you guys together. That's what he is doing, being close to them. He places himself, number two, he places himself at Philemon's feet, not above him, right? Check this out. I think this is actually kind of really cool. Um, So, in all the epistles that we've been reading, Paul's letters to everybody else, right? Paul has like a way of like introducing himself nearly every time, right? Can somebody, somebody knows what I'm talking about, right? Paul, uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ, right? Like that's how most of his letters start. Paul does not refer to himself as an apostle for Jesus Christ in this letter, right? In his greeting, instead he calls himself a prisoner for Jesus Christ, which is a couple of cool things. One, it places emphasis upon his ministry and what he's willing to suffer for, for Christ Jesus. But it also does another thing. It actually places himself on the level of a criminal, right? The reason for this is super clear, right? Paul's not writing from a position of authority, 
In his other letters, right, he's writing from this position of authority. You guys need to do this. This church, guys, you need to do this. I'm an apostle. I, uh, you know, like, I know the scriptures. Like, here's what you guys need to do. In this letter, he's saying, not from a position of authority. Uh, this is not coming from Paul the apostle. This is coming from Paul Philemon's friend. Number three, he praises God for what he is doing through Philemon and his ministry. Uh, for lack of a better word, he butters him up. Uh, verses four through seven. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived, I love this, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Now, I want to clarify This is not empty praise, right? Paul is genuinely and truthfully celebrating Philemon for the work of the gospel Philemon is doing in Colossae, right? And we all know what that feels like. We all know the difference, right? True heartfelt applause feels like from people who deeply uh, love us, right? There's a world of difference between when my wife or Josh or one of my really, really close friends uh, comes to me and says, dude, I'm so proud of you. Great job with that thing that you did. Like that means way, way more to me than when some random fan at a makeshift casual concert comes to me after the show and says, dude, that was awesome. Like that, that's, there's so much more meaning behind when somebody who I know, who I trust, who loves me comes to me and says, dude, you are killing it. Great job. Like he, this is all totally from the heart. This is not empty praise. Finally, uh, not finally, there's two more. <laughs> um, Paul never commands uh, Philemon, though he knows he can. This is very similar to point number two, but it's a little bit different. Verse eight says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Paul doesn't want Philemon to obey him, right? He wants Philemon to love Onesimus the way he loves Paul. So he uses words and phrases like, my child, sending you my very heart, right? As a beloved brother, for love's sake. All these things that are painting this picture of affection and friendship, not as a leader commanding a follower. Finally, and absolutely most importantly, right? And this is where we're going to finish up this morning. Paul puts himself in the place of Christ. In verses 17 through 20, we read, so if you consider me your partner, Receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your own, of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Paul here is appealing to Philemon's knowledge of the gospel, right? He's reminding him of what Christ has done for him, for Philemon, through Paul. And then Paul places himself on the cross by being willing to pay whatever Philemon required for Onesimus' restoration, right? I will pay it. This is by far the greatest appeal to forgiveness in the hearts of followers of Jesus, right? To be like Christ is, to be like Christ is the calling, right? To do what he did. Remember that the first relationship that God restored in the life of the Christian is the relationship between you and God, 
right? So the response is to be Christ to others, right? To love them as Christ loved us. In the Gospel of John, um, Jesus writes, uh, lays down this, this new commandment to us. In, in chapter 13, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you, love one, if you have love for one another. By this, all people will know. Is that us? Right? Are we a people defined by our outrageous ability to forgive and love those who've hurt us? Right? I wonder sometimes if, if that description really defines our church today. Paul warned uh, the, Roman, the Roman church about what traits dominated their perverted society. Right? He lists them off in, in Romans 1. He says stuff like they're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I think we sometimes gloss over that last word, ruthless. What does it mean to be ruthless? The quality of lacking pity or compassion for others. Synonyms include merciless, unsparing, and unforgiving. There's one more reason we should forgive. There's more, but like there's one more big one. One far, far more important than just the way it brings healing to us or the way it, you know, it shows off the church, right? Um, Jesus spells it out for his disciples in Matthew 18, right? In verses 23 through 35, Jesus narrates this parable. It's a pretty well-known parable in which a master squares a bunch of debts with all of his servants, right? And one of them has this debt so large uh, that he'd never be able to repair, repay it in several lifetimes. And after he begs with the master to give him more time to settle the debt, the master does something extraordinary and he just completely forgives the debt. No repayment plan, no settlement, Right? Basically, like it never existed. The servant, of course, then goes to one of his fellow servants who owes him like pennies, right? And demands that he pay him immediately, right? When that servant begs for more time, he refuses, has him locked in prison. And then listen to how the master responds when he finds out about this. Then this master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then just to make it really clear, crystal clear to all of his listeners, Jesus adds, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. As followers of Jesus, each one of us owes God a massive, unpayable debt. Paul did, Onesimus did, and Philemon did too. A debt that was ultimately paid by someone else because we couldn't. The book of Philemon shows that to us on a really human level. It's, it's like God's how-to manual for, for that restoration. Here, here's a real-world example of how you ought to forgive. Here's Paul, here's Philemon, here's Paul asking Philemon, as you have been forgiven, forgive. Paul didn't command it, but God sure does. Uh, I'm going to invite the band up uh, as I just finish out this last little bit here. Um, what do we do with this, Right? Ultimately, at the end of the day, what do we? Ultimately, what am I trying to get at with this tiny little letter that one guy wrote to another guy about a third guy? 
It's this. We remind ourselves daily that we are all those guys, right? I need to remember when I was the betrayer, the Onesimus. I need to remember when I was Philemon, the betrayed. I need to remember when I had the opportunity to be Paul, right? To bring people back together. Where is God calling you to be repentant? Where is God calling you to forgive past hurts that you've allowed to fester into bitterness? And where is God calling you to intercede like Christ on behalf of your brother or your sister? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much um, just for this time that we can get into your word. I thank you for letters like the letter to Philemon. Uh, God, that uh, one of my commentaries this week actually said that if Paul knew that this letter was being studied in churches, that he'd probably be embarrassed. Um, Because it's so personal, and yet it teaches us something so universal about your kingdom, right? That your kingdom is about restoring relationships. And that first relationship you restored was your relationship with us. And the way it was restored was a Christ that died for us. So God, I pray that we not forget that, that we remember that when we're in situations where we need to be forgiving, when we're in situations where we need to repent and go to that person. God, situations where we see people hurting, two people hurting, and we need to pull them together. God, I pray that we be an intercessory people. I pray that we be a repentant people. And I pray that ultimately we be a forgiving people. It's in your great precious name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's teaching from Northwest Hills Community Church. We hope you find ways to apply the gospel to your life. And be sure to check out our website, nwhills.com, where you'll find ways to engage with us. And if you're able, we'd love to see you at church next Sunday. Thanks again for listening.